Well, uh, this is it. We've arrived. This is the final, uh, final sermon in the series of, of Jonah. If you've got a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to, to Jonah chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, so it makes it easy to chunk it up into a, a, a four-week four sermon series because there's four chapters. It's pretty straightforward there. But uh, as you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about, about the uh, Ninevites. If you've heard anybody preach through Jonah before, uh, they usually tell you about the Ninevites ahead of time, and I chose not to do that. You may already know about the Ninevites and the Assyrians as a whole. Maybe you're a history buff. Maybe you know nothing about them, and today you're going to learn a lot. Um, but the title of today's message is, is Worm. It's in uh, Jonah 4. You're going to find out why that's the title uh, in just a little bit if you're not unfamiliar with the book. Uh, but about the Syrians, uh, about the Ninevites, first, there's some things you should know about them. One, uh, they are military mighty people. And military might was central to what made them successful, I quote unquote, in, in dominating the world during that part of time, okay? So the Assyrian Empire uh, was a, a big empire over there in the Middle East section. And the reason was, is because all men had to serve in the military, every single one. And they were on a three-year cycle, and so at the time that a boy became a man, he was now part of this three-year cycle. And this three-year cycle would look something like this. The first year, they would go throughout the Assyrian Empire. They would be kind of distributed around to do uh, work. And what I mean by work is hard manual labor, like the Romans. So they would build roads. They would build structures. They would, they would fortify cities. They would, they would do all those. They would rebuild cities that they had destroyed. And so they're, they're, they've taken them over and they're redoing that. So they would do hard manual labor for year one. Year two, then they would go into uh, war. So that whole second year would be them fighting. And so the kind of fighting that they would do is, of course, as you can assume, very brutal. And then after that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in just a minute here, how, how brutal they were. Um, after that, the third year was then they get to go home and attend to their home affairs, right? So if they're married and they have kids or they have their own farm or whatever they have to do, and then that was the end of the three-year cycle. And so as they were doing the cycle, it was, it was strategically brilliant because they'd always have things being worked on and maintained and, and upkept. They'd always have some people at, at, the, at home base, so to speak, and then they'd always have a healthy, fit fighting force because you would rotate through this. And so this was paramount to why they were so good and why they had this empire for so long. Now, one of the things that made them so scary and why we can relate to why Jonah maybe didn't want to go, and we're going to learn today exactly why Jonah didn't want to go, uh, but one of those reasons was is because they used uh, psychological warfare. What I mean by that is they had tablets that they would, not, not these kind of tablets, right? Like uh, the original, the original OG tablet, like a piece of stone tablet, you know? And they would, they would carve images on there and they would write things on there and, the, and they would leave them where they had already been through or they would send them forward and they were well known. And on these images that they would carve, they would illustrate their torture procedures upon those enemy forces that they would, that they would conquer. Because, and the reason they would use illustrations is not everybody can read, right? But we can all understand images. And so they would carve these images on there showing what they would do. And some of the things that they would do is this. So, um, ready? Uh, they would skin people alive. Uh, they would blind them. They would impale them. Uh, one of the kings in his thing that he left, now he, he wrote this, and this is this cuneiform, maybe you're familiar with that, 
You can Google that if you're not, but it looks like it looks like a stork walked around in the mud a lot, but that's their language. That's how they wrote, okay? But um, in this, he wrote that what he did to their nobles after destroying the city, he took their nobles and he removed their skin while alive and then he draped their skin over uh, the walls uh, so that other people could see and then he took the piles of their heads and, and put them up on the outside so that as you walked into the gates, you'd be draped skins and, and heads of the nobles. Now, he, they would give you a chance to surrender. Uh, but if you didn't surrender, uh, part of what they would do is they would send in these, these entourages and they'd say, you can surrender now and then we will allow you to eat your grapes and your figs and your vineyards, or you cannot surrender, and by the time this day is over, you will all be eating your own. You can f- let your imagination fill in the blank. They would often chop off ears, noses, and lips of people. Um, they would get creative sometimes, and, and sometimes they would have their, their captives wear necklaces of the heads of other victims. And if you survived all of this, if you survived the attacks from the Assyrians, then you were often put into slavery. And so uh, the women and the men were often split up, and they were not only taken from where they lived, but they were scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, and they did this to diffuse any kind of factions that might rise up, right? They would, they would spread the families and things like that apart, and then you would then go to hard labor camps to, to do the work that the Assyrians didn't want to do so that their war engines could continue to move on. Uh, This, actually, the Assyrians uh, were inventive. They invented siege weapons such as the battering ram, right? So this was the people who invented the battering ram. And it was severely successful. And the way that they would do it, if you've seen, you know, Lord of the Rings or Monty Python, Quest for the Holy Grail or things like that, that they may have had these things. The idea is, you know, you've got this uh, wagon with the wheels on it and it's got this large thing. And then over top of that, they would have cow hides, usually cow hides that were soaked in, in water so that if they were shooting down flaming arrows or something like that, the people underneath it would be secure and they would just demolish these gates and these doors that people would put up around their city. Not only that, though, they would do com- what is known to us maybe as complete obliteration or what we might refer to as overkill. Uh, what they would do is they would not only destroy the people of the city, but they would destroy the city. So this is one of the things they did to Babylon when they went in and they took over Babylon. They, they took the walls down. They took the, the buildings down. They, they leveled it. And this was to be a sign for other people who might oppose them, right? It's all about getting into their head. So they wanted their enemy to be defeated before they even showed up to the gates. But the problem with this kind of lifestyle is even the Assyrians themselves experienced what we would now call uh, PTSD, because of this warfare and because of this brutality, there is many a writing from the Assyrian warriors themselves that said that they had been plagued by sleepless nights or ghosts, they would say, of the folks that they saw that they had to do these things to. Now, why do I tell you that now? Uh, Because I want for you to understand the depth and the weight of what God is saying in the text today, of, of why Jonah's saying what he's saying, maybe how he feels, because we're going to apply this to us. So we're about to go through Jonah 4, and, and I'm going to give you the, the commentary around it, and then we're going to, I hope, try to apply it to ourselves, right? Because this is for a nation that no longer exists. This is tactics that, I pray, uh, no longer exist. And this is for uh, a person who wrote a book a long time ago. And so you might say, well, okay, but how does that apply to me today? 
Okay? So thank you for asking that question. Job 24, 4 through 6 says, How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of women be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm? And so using a play on words today, the title of today's message is, is Worm. Because it's important that we remember that the Assyrians themselves are really no different than us. And Jonah 4 is going to show us what God says about people like that. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for today. I thank you for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you for your Bible, your love story that you have written to us. I thank you for your relentless pursuing love of your people. And God, we ask that as we look at Jonah today, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, that you would be with us as we look at it, that we might apply it rightly uh, to our lives. Show us more of yourself in it, we pray. Show us more of our own hearts in it, we also pray. And help us to bring that before you today, we ask. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So as we go through the text, uh, I know you probably found your way there. If, If you didn't bring a copy, you know, luck has it on your, on your behalf today. We're, we're going to have it up on the screen, too. Um, it starts off, verse 1, in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So what displeased him? Well, you have to go back up to chapter 3. So this is where your own copy of the Bible is really helpful, because I'm not going to have this on the screen for you. But chapter, you can take my word for it. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then verse chapter 4. Remember, by the way, when you study your Bibles, uh, Jonah didn't write chapter 4, verse 1. That was put in later by monks, you know, probably in the Dark Ages or something like that. And so as we read scripture, we should read it like as a whole, right? So this whole book is meant to be read all in once. But I know you guys, that'd be a really hard sermon to sit through, right? Like, and I'd probably lose my voice. So we, we, we chunk it up the way we do. Anyway, I digress. Just a little Bible study freebie for you there. Uh, but it displeased Jonah exceeding. Now, literally, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew of this, what he's really saying is, literally, this was great evil in the eyes of Jonah. Do you hear that? Jonah was annoyed. He saw it as evil that God actually did not destroy the Ninevites. Now, now that we just understood who the kind of people the Assyrians and the Ninevites are, maybe you are also tempted to view it this way. But Jonah is exceedingly angry about this, and then he goes on from there and he prays. And this is an interesting prayer, I think. Um, I would almost not call it a prayer. I'd almost call it an accusation, but I suppose anytime we talk to God, it's, it's technically a prayer. Um, But it says here that he prayed to the Lord. Now, look at the text. It says capital L-O-R-D. So he's using the Jewish Yahweh, like the proper name of of God. So he's he's appealing to a personal, intimate God who he knows, not just some random deity out there, right? This is God of the Jews, uh, Lord, Yahweh. He says, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. There it is. Now we know. Now we know, and if you weren't familiar with Jonah, then I'm, I'm glad, you know, hopefully you were waiting with bated breath until now. If you were familiar with Jonah, maybe you forgot. Maybe you forgot that this is why. So think of this right now. Uh, Jonah, remember we said last week, he, he almost discovered America, right? Like he went so far in the other direction. Jonah is leaving. He is not being obedient, not because he has a 
misunderstanding of who God is, but because he knows exactly who God is. Let's go back to the text. This is why I fled. This is why I went to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So look at the words he uses here. He says that God is gracious. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. This steadfast love is the same word hased that we've talked about in other things like lamentations and others. It's this covenantal promise keeping forever and ever, never leaving faithful love of God, right? That's that's the best way maybe we could describe that today. So because I know these things and, and because I also know that you're going to relent from disaster. See, Jonah knows God intimately and personally. And that's where he finds the fault with him. Jonah abused his knowledge of God. Jonah wanted for himself what he wanted God to deny his enemy. In fact, as we see Jonah's life, think about this. Jonah actually counts on this character of God as he's fleeing. Let me, let me say that to you again. The reason Jonah thinks he can get away with fleeing from God is because he understands this is God's character. God, because I know you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger, I'm running. And because I know you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and that you don't want to destroy me, I'm going to do what I want to do even though it's against what you want because I'm going to take for granted these things that I know to be true. We could stop right there, and I would be convicted. But we can't, because we've got more text to go through. So verse 3 says this, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So why is Jonah saying this? Well, probably, for one, he is so upset that the Assyrians, that the Ninevites, are not getting what he feels that they deserve, that he is just, he's had enough. He does not want to deal with this anymore. He doesn't want to live his life anymore. Another reason is, that this scholars say, is because he is a prophet. And Scripture tells us, throughout the Old Testament, that if you are going to speak on behalf of God, but you're not saying the things that God is going to say, then you deserve to die. That is also why James in the New Testament says, not many of you should become teachers, right? Because you're going to be held to a higher standard. Um, So preachers, teachers, we take our lives in our hands every time we get up here to say anything, because if it's not from God, did you guys bring your rocks with you this morning? Because in this day and age, this is what should have happened to Jonah. He made a prophecy, right? He said in 40 days, 40 nights, and then Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and it doesn't happen, which means it could be, it could be perceived. Now, we have, we have the 10,000-foot view of everything that's going on, right? But in their minds, Jonah is now a false prophet. So he's, he's upset that he feels like he's failed the Lord. He cannot serve in this current condition. How can you serve the Lord with such malice and hatred in your heart? How can you love one another as Christ has commanded us to do with such derision in your heart for fellow man? And the irony of Jonah's life that we see in this story is just crazy. First, he flees from the Lord and then has a prayer not to be banished from the Lord's presence. Then 
he is saved by the Lord, only later to then ask to be killed by the Lord. I think, brother and sister, we should praise the Lord for unanswered prayers. Now, if you're a country fan, I know that that's a country song. But my theology is much deeper than whoever that is. I don't know who that is. Thank you. I knew somebody would know. So, thank you, Garth. But I don't know his theology either, but I can tell you for this in particular, praise the Lord that he doesn't answer this prayer. God, please take my life from me. It's better for me not to live. And all God would have had to do was the whole Thanos, you know, and he's, he's done. He's done. And if God wasn't who Jonah knows him to be, it is very likely that God would have. And then that would have been it. Because let's be honest, has Jonah had a stellar track record at this point? No. However, if you did bring stones, right, Hopefully you don't live in a glass house because how many of us can say we've got a stellar track record before the Lord? None is what scripture says. So thank the Lord for sometimes unanswered prayers. Maybe you have prayed a prayer or something like this before. I know that I have. I know that I have battled and I've been in a place very dark in my own depression or my own anxiety, my own self-loathing where I have asked for the Lord to end my life. And I can tell you that there is a wife and there are four children in this building that are very thankful that our God is loving and merciful and long-suffering and patient. Amen. And so in verse 4, the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? Now, now this is a question that none of us really need anybody to answer because all of us, Almost every time in our life, now we, we, in the seven deadly sins, if you remember that, we covered wrath as one of them. And in that, I did talk about righteous and unrighteous anger. So I don't want to, I don't want to re-go over that now. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of our anger is not usually righteous anger. And so the answer to this question, do you do well to be angry? The answer is, 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 is no. Of course not. And Jonah does not respond. And Jonah probably doesn't respond because he is angry and because he has a good understanding of who God is. And he probably thinks to himself, you, you, you already know this. This is not righteous anger. This is malicious vengeance on Jonah's part. And so Jonah needs more correction, and God sees that. Can anybody relate to that? And so what's happening here is Jonah did go to Nineveh, Jonah did give the message, but he did so, he was physically obedient without spiritual submission. And brother or sister, that is what will send us to hell. God wants our hearts. Was it not exactly what he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious elite of their day, that their hearts were far from him? Their dead their empty tombs with dead men's bones inside. He doesn't just want physical obedience, although that is, I believe, an outpouring of the internal love that we have for the Lord. But what Jonah is showing us here is there is a possibility of physical obedience with our hearts still far from the Lord. And so Jonah needs more correction. And so God is going to prove Jonah's description true one last time in this text. 
And so he begins that in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what became of the city. Jonah was waiting for destruction. Jonah was wanting a front row seat here. He was in the movie theater, so to speak, kind of with the stage before him, just kind of waiting and watching. He builds a booth which is super ironic too, because is that not what Israel was commanded to do after they are being set free from captivity out in the wilderness? God says, hey, make a booth and do it every single year to remember God's provision for you. He doesn't think about that when he's out there, does he? He just builds the booth because he doesn't like the sun. And so he's out there waiting to see and to hope for. So he's out there for this 40 times. He's out there the whole time. The whole time he's on the hilltop listening to the wailing prayers and watching the fasting and sackcloth of the Ninevites down in the city. And so verse 6 happens. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Here's some things that, you don't, that we don't see in the English text, but I want to give them to you. So in this, it says, to save him from his discomfort. In the literal translation, this is to deliver him from his evil. Interesting. Interesting that this plant in the Hebrew text is referred to often as a vine. Interesting. Now, people debate over if it was a gourd or if it was a castor oil plant or if it was whatever kind of bush. I, I don't want to waste your time with all that. What we need to know is that God appointed this plant to save him from his evil, so to speak, from, to save him from his discomfort. And then what we see here, again in the text, is that Jonah was exceedingly glad. What it means there is he was literally giddy with joy over this plant. It means rejoicing with great joy. It, we can picture him as if he is singing praises to the Lord over this plant. Now, where he is at, the average temperature is around 110 degrees. So it's hot, Okay. But dawn, so in the Bible, there's one of these transition words, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So here's what you need to see. God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over the skies above and the earth beneath. The winds and the waves obey him. It doesn't matter if it's a great fish or a tiny little caterpillar. It does not matter if it's on land or sea. It doesn't matter if it's Jew or Gentile. God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. So again, this book is not about a fish. I know we think of the fish when we think of Jonah. This book is not about Jonah. It's not about a plant. It's not about a worm. It's not really even about Nineveh. It's about God. This book is about God. It's about who God is and how God interacts with people and what his heart desires and how he rewards his heart's desire. That's what Jonah is about. And so we see in verse 8 then too, God appoints something else. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So this east wind, there is an east wind still to this day. They have named it just like they have. You've heard of things like El Nino and those kind of things that are kind of a a ever present thing that come from time to time. Well, this wind, they believe, scholars think, that it is the Sirocco, 
which is the name of that. It says, when this wind is experienced in the Near East, the temperature rises dramatically. We were already at 110, probably about, right? So the temperature rises dramatically. The humidity drops quickly, and it is a constant and extremely hot wind that can, contains fine particles of dust in it. Sounds super pleasant. It, it contains uh, constant hot air that is full of positive ions that will affect the levels of uh, chemical in the brain and causing, of course, exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality or bizarre behavior, which is also, you know, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, those kind of things. So this can happen very quickly. So God appoints a plant to make him rejoice in. Then God appoints a worm to destroy that plant. And then God appoints this wind to come at this time so that he might be teaching Jonah a lesson. And ironically, then again, for Jonah, the only shelter that he would have had from this is not his booth. It is the city of Nineveh itself. And do you think he went there? No. You think he's going to eat that crow? No. Not in this story. Basically, everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And then God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And now Jonah answers this, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I don't know about you, I think that's an overreaction. But the point here is that Jonah's values are topsy-turvy. See, Jonah's values, this plant of people. Jonah values his own personal comfort over God's creation. And so often, that's the camp we fall into. Now, we might not say it like this. It ends with no real closure, unfortunately, for those of you who, you know, like all your movies and all your stories to have that tidy little bow at the end. I, watch the Hallmark Channel, I guess. <laughs> but verse 10 and 11 it says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the question that captures the intention of this entire book. The question is simply put like this. What right do we have to demand that God favor us over others? Here's how one of the commentators wrote this. He, he kind of rewrote God's question here to focus in on some of the things that God is saying in the text that he didn't actually say in the text. This is what it says. Jonah, uh, let us, this is God speaking in, in this commentary. Let us analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant, but what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it could not have been very deep, for it was there one day and gone the next. Your concern, your concern for it was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had for it the devotion of the gardener. If you feel as badly as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like? Who tended a plant, watched it grow, only to see it wither and die, that poor thing. And this is how I feel about Nineveh, only much more so. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort 
and they mean the world to me. Your pain is nothing to mine when I contemplate their destruction. So like I said, this story is deliberately left open-ended. We don't know what Jonah does after this. And so I want to tie this to the New Testament for you so we can apply it. Jesus ties it, and I believe, these parables when he talks about in Matthew 18 and in Luke 15, there's the parable of the unforgiven servant and there's the parable of the prodigal son, both of which show us this same kind of attitude. You may be familiar with them. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of both of them just in case you're not. In Matthew 18, this unforgiven servant, Peter, I love Peter, Peter comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And the reason he says that is because traditionally it's three. It's like baseball, right? Three strikes and then you're done and then you're cut off from me from ever. Never going to forgive you again. That's it. Three strikes, you're out. Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus is like, no. I tell you, seven times, 70 times, or 77 times. Just, just a figure that's just outrageous. Way more than anybody's thinking. You, we can picture Peter being like, oh, you know, like that. that that's, that's the picture here, right? For us, 77 isn't that much, but it's the... It's what Jesus is getting at behind that. He says, I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate this. And so he tells him this story of the unforgiven servant. There's one servant that owes a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, to the master. Uh, He goes to the master, he begs and pleads, and the master says, okay, I'll forgive your debt, go ahead and go away. Just an outrageous amount of money to be forgiven. He goes out into the parlor, sees another servant that owes him, like, you know, lunch money, or a car payment, and he grabs him, starts choking him out, gives him to the jailers, throws him to the jailers. The master hears about this, calls him in, and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, Jesus stops the story there, and he breaks in, and he gives us this information. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And then he tells another parable, like I said, the prodigal son. Perhaps you're familiar with that. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. This is how it goes. There's two sons, one older, one younger. Uh, The younger comes to dad, and he says, hey, I would like my inheritance now. So the dad splits his stuff in half, or however he splits it back then, however that works, and he gives some to the younger son. The younger son goes to Vegas, basically, okay? There's no, there's, there's no Vegas in the text, in case you didn't know. But he goes to Vegas, okay? He goes to Vegas, he blows it. He blows it at the craps table, he blows it with women of ill repute, he blows it in the alley back street, if you, if you catch my drift. He does all those things, and then eventually he looks at his life, and he says, man, this is, this is not good. As he's eating out of dumpsters, he thinks to himself, my dad... My dad has his own personal chef back home, and I'm eating out of dumpsters. I'm, I'm going home, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask if I can be the gardener, because even the gardener gets the leftovers from the personal chef. I'm going home. I'm taking some liberties with this. This isn't exactly how this works. Hopefully, hopefully you're okay with that. So he goes home. His father sees him a long way off, runs to him, embraces him, Throws a party for him, right? Puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, brings him in. The older son comes in and basically says, what is this? This son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, killed a fattened calf for him, and he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad For this your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and now he's found. 
And so here's how I think that Jonah mixed with these applies to us this morning. Do you have a biblical framework for God? And why that's my first point here is because Jonah has a biblical framework for God, but it changes him not a lick, apparently. But it's important that we have a biblical framework of God. Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And I ask you the same question this morning too. Do you have a biblical framework for God? Some people see God in a couple of different ways that are are true-ish, but are not true. Sometimes people see God as this fiery judge in heaven with a lightning bolt cocked, ready to smite whoever happens to take a step over the line. Other people see God as some jovial Santa Claus who like showers gifts on everybody regardless of how they act. They just, hey, it's okay, I'm okay, you're okay, get in here, let's hug it out. Both of those are wrong because neither of them are biblical. They have biblical aspects, but they are askew. People have taken those views and they've run off the rails. God has these things called communicable and incommunicable attributes. Some of them are things like he is eternal, he is omnipresent, he is all-powerful, he is holy, he is just, he is righteous. God is love, yes, but he is also just. And the two are held in perfect balance. Never does one outstrip the other. If you do not have a biblical framework for who God is, then you do not have the God of the Bible. And if you do not have a biblical framework for who God is, you will often live your life like Jonah. The second thing then is this. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? See, the sailors knew God. They knew Elohim. They were told about Elohim. The Ninevites knew a God. They knew the destruction was possibly coming. Jonah knew God as a Jew, right? But it is only until you know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that you know the fullness of who God is. It is in Christ Jesus that his holy, righteous standard of justice and wrath and also his mercy and his grace and his love find their completion. It is only in Christ Jesus. Yeah, amen. You cannot fully know God outside of Christ. And that's not my words. That's what he said. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. James, I think it's James, he says, you know that God exists, you do great. Even demons know that God exists. But demons have no personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ did not die for them. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you. And this morning I'm talking to you personally, individually, not y'all. I was in the South. I know the difference. Jesus died for you as well as y'all. So that brings me to the third point then of how we, uh, how, how we apply, Jonah, I think, is do you trust the Lord? Because Jonah apparently did not trust the Lord. And I think in our own lives, we struggle to trust the Lord. We say that we trust the Lord, but we sometimes doubt the Lord's wisdom, which is in fact doubting the Lord. Look at all the things that God appointed for Jonah. He appointed a message. He appointed a storm. He appointed a fish. He appointed a vomiting fish. He appointed again a call. He appointed 
All the stuff we see in today. He appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed a wind. All of those things, God is in control over all of those things. Remember we talked about with that crazy fish? Think of the statistics of this. Do you understand how many square miles the ocean makes up? Like, it's ridiculous, right? Just ridiculous. And this fish happens to be at this spot, at this time to swallow this man for this long to then bring him back to this land so he can, he could have vomited him anywhere. I don't know how fast a fish swims in three days. God had all of this woven out together. The thing about it is, God, I don't know if this is going to blow your mind or not. I hope that it does. Think about it longer if it doesn't. God knew that Jonah was going to be angry about a plant with a worm back when he was in Joppa and he told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And still told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Do you understand that? So why can't we trust the Lord? Why can't we trust the Lord with making sure the paycheck's on time? Or, 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 or that our health is under his control? Or that our family is under his control? Or that our future is under his control? Here's another way I think that this applies. Why can't we trust the Lord with the folks we don't necessarily get along with or agree with? Because if we trust the Lord, we can have a biblical framework for what forgiveness is. We can have a biblical framework for what mercy and compassion and grace is. Because we can trust that the Lord has got our best interests at heart. And even if there's a fish and a worm and a wind, he's still got got us. And so that brings me to my last and final point. What's your Nineveh? Remember the context here? Jonah hates the Ninevites. And I can't think of any better way to put this. I mean, hates is the right term. Jonah wants these people to be destroyed by the Lord. I don't think there's a a more clear illustration of hate. And we say these things like, love the sinner, hate the sin. But is that really how we feel? What if, what if next Sunday, what if next Sunday there was a a parade downtown? And the parade was made up of whatever group of people you don't like. So, I don't know, made up of Republicans or Democrats, made up of, um, you know, homosexuals or drag queens, made up of whatever, pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I don't know, whatever, (laughs) whatever. Whatever it is you don't like, right? The parade is made up of those folks. It's at next Sunday... And it's at, it's supposed to start at 10 o'clock. And somebody gets a word from the Lord that they should go down there and they should preach to the people who are down there. And all of them decide they want to repent. And so all of them, dressed up in whatever they've got on, because they're about to do a parade, 
are met with the Lord and they start coming in here at 10.30 in the morning in other churches. How do you respond to them? Because they're your Nineveh. Can you love the sinner and, and, and just discard the sin? That's what Jesus is calling us to. We are Jesus's Nineveh. And yet he came for us. Remember, he uses this illustration of Jonah as just as the Ninevites had the sign, so you're going to have this sign. And he's our sign. So are we seeking to respond as Christ does to Nineveh or as Jonah does? James P. Boyce is a theologian. This is what he said. Jonah should have perished miserably inside that great fish. He had renounced God. It would have been only proper if God had renounced him. Yet God had showed him great mercy, first in bringing him to repentance, and then saving him and recommissioning him to preach to Nineveh. Jonah had certainly experienced mercy at the hand of God, but there was a long journey across that desert. Man's memory is short. Jonah had forgotten God's mercy and was therefore ill-prepared to appreciate it when God showed that same mercy to others. You see, there is a Jonah that lurks in the heart of every Christian, whimpering its insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, exclusive solidarity. And so those of us who have ears to hear, let us hear and allow the saving love of God, which has been outpoured in his own heart, to remold our thinking so that we might not have that same thinking for others. And so I guess I would end today's message by simply saying this. Beware the growth of the vine of self-righteousness. Rather, we should all pray that God will graciously appoint spiritual worms to reveal to us our own condition before a holy God so that we might be able to share the love and affection, mercy and grace and forgiveness truly with those around us. Let's pray. Uh, Also, as we pray, can you go down and let them have the uh, kids come up so we can take communion with the kids? Thanks. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for today's word from Jonah. We ask that you would help our hearts. All of us, Lord, all of us are rejoicing over those plants that are growing up, not even seeing that they are truly blinding us from that which we must see which is your people. You have told us that we are to love those as you loved us. And that's a hard pill to swallow, Lord. We can only do that with you. In and of ourselves, we are powerless to do so. Help us to love others as you have loved us. And also, God, for those of us who are here this morning who are maybe having a hard time with this or maybe don't even believe this story, you're telling me that a fish swallowed a man for three days? Yeah, right. Well, believing them fish swallowed a man for three days is not required for your salvation. It is believing that a man came to die on a cross for your sins to pay your penalty, which you deserve. And our conscience agrees with that, for we know that we are guilty before a holy God. And we can either choose to seek to outdo our bad deeds with good deeds and so earn our way into heaven, or we can receive the free gift we have in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we may doubt about the fish. Help us to have understanding of clarity and a a real true faith in your son Jesus Christ who you sent because it's in his name we pray amen Um, so I'll, I'll do this